This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Timeline Warriors. And the author is Lee Holum, and Lee joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Lee. Hello. Good to have you with us, Lee. I'm going to read just a couple things that you've written about your book, Timeline Warriors. Uh, you say this, this is a science fiction novel. It describes an encounter with parallel worlds with an 1800 vintage British warship by a modern cruise ship. What date is it? What, 2019? That is correct. And, of course, it deals with the rescue of a sailor who has been condemned on that 1800 vintage British warship. And it also encounters all kinds of strange warships from other parallel worlds and a pursuit of rogue warships from a world that had been destroyed with nuclear and biological weapons. Sounds like a fantastic book. How did you come up with this idea? Well, I've been interested in parallel world ideas since about 1950. I ran across a story in the summer of 50 that uh, it just it intrigued me. It has always intrigued me the different possibilities that uh, history could, courses that history could take. And uh, it's an old idea in science fiction. It goes way back, you know, at least I first encountered it, and I think the first stories that I knew of at that time was had been written in the late 40s. And I ran, have run into a number of these things over the years, and it just seemed like it was a good idea for a, uh, for an adventure story. Well, the hero, I guess, is Tom Weston, right? Uh, yes, that's right. Tell us about Tom. Uh, he was a retired Coast Guard officer. He retired as a captain and, uh, of course, had served 30 years from 1981 until 2011 and had been in various capacities, and had also uh, had commanded ships and had served in the, uh, had served aboard icebreakers and aboard Coast Guard cutters and in various, had, had in the uh, various places like the Aleutian Islands and the, uh, uh, the South Polar Expeditions, and uh, of course just the routine operations of the Coast Guard. And he and his wife decide to go off on a cruise. Well, it's, his wife kind of pushed him into that. That uh, They generally went to Hawaii. He had a 40-foot, at the time they had a 40-foot sailboat. And they would go to Hawaii in the winter because the Seattle winters are difficult. His wife had difficulties with the Seattle winters. They tend to be depressing. And that is generally true. Their suicide rate runs very high during the winter time because of the low clouds and the, the grizzly rain that they get. So they, uh, that after she retired, then they bought a place in Hawaii, and then they would they would go there in October and come back in April by, uh, with their sailboat. And so that was the. But she decided that she wanted to take a different course at that particular time. She had run across the, uh, I think we, I indicated that she had run across 
a brochure for a cruise line that they were uh, for a Cape Horn cruise. And that she liked, like she liked the idea. She said, like she tells him that she'd like to have somebody else do all the work. (laughs) (laughs) And during the cruise, the ship goes into this really dense sea fog, the really dense fog, and all of a sudden, strange things start happening. Well, that's when they, uh, of course, this. Uh, now, my wife and I have been on a Cape Horn cruise. We went around, of course, we sailed from Buenos Aires around to Santiago, Chile, back in uh, the spring of 2007. So I have some idea of what something like that's like. Now, this one, of course, that I described goes from Fort Lauderdale all the way around. It's supposed to go all the way around to, uh, uh, to San Francisco, although, the, of course, events in the novel kind of change their plans. <laughs> Right, and uh, as they're going through that sea mist, all of a sudden, everything stops working on the ship? No, uh, they have no problem with that. Of course, they encounter, now Tom and his friend, he has, they have two friends that, are, that go with them, and they're sitting on the balcony of, their, of the cruise ship, of their, of their cabin, when this gate opens up, and it just looks like a, a bank of mist on the water. And an 1800s warship comes through that, That's what they call a ship of the line, a 74-gun ship of the line, because I'll describe it in some detail. And that, uh, and that's what, of course, he knows. Weston knows about this. He had read about a, a scientist that had discovered this this phenomenon, so he had some idea what had happened. And uh, he goes uh, and. Of course, the captain of the cruise ship, he's known him from his Coast Guard days because he had run into him at the academy. And uh, the captain asks, asks him about it, and he sends him out to the uh, aboard one of the rescue boats just to tell the captain of the ship that he can go back the way he came, that he would come back to where he, where he came from. And, of course, that's when the events start happening that, uh, that he... Uh, that he sees a sailor hanging on a net in front of the ship. It turns out the sailor had gone to sleep on watch, and he's being punished. Of course, it's a death sentence. Uh, this is actually this actually happened in the British Navy in the early 1800s. This was something. This is fairly is historically active. I, accurate. I ran across it in the History Channel about well, several years ago in a, a discussion of the contrast between Nelson's Navy and the modern British Navy. And they told about this uh, this particular punishment. And they gave the sailor a loaf of bread, a knife, and a bottle of water. And he could he could stay alive as long as his, that he stayed with the bread and the water, or he could just cut the net and die quickly onto the bow of the ship. And, of course, Tom rescues this guy. And... Uh, now, there were a lot of times there were women aboard those ships. They weren't, most of them were not much better than prostitutes. And there were sometimes as many as a hundred. And they would fight right alongside the men. Whereas <clears throat> I also described, there's his girlfriend, Rachel Parker, jumps over the side when she sees this rescue. And he's, of course, picked up by the, by the boat. And, of course, their interactions with Tom and Wilma and their 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 approach, their, the way that they, they learn about the modern world makes part of the plot of this, of this novel. That you've got a couple from the early 19th century 
who suddenly find themselves in the, in the 21st century, <clears throat> or, you know, in a 21st century world. And they have to, of course, the technology of our world would be uh, would probably be lethal to somebody from that unless they were instructed. And that's what uh, part of the plot of part of this plot uh, uh, proceeds this way. They're just the process of them acclimatizing themselves to the modern world. And uh, it adds, <coughs> I thought it would add, <coughs> excuse me, it would add a little bit of interest to the uh, you know two things. Just the contrast. Uh, and then you have several French and English warships emerging yeah. from the gate, and yeah, they're uh, and they're in a and they're in a battle. Well, they of course he goes the ship that this Jake Jake Chaffee and Rachel Parker come from. They it turns around, goes back through the gate, and disappears. <clears throat> but they they think well that's the end of it. But then a few hours later. The uh, the original ship and two other and a uh, an eighty gun ship of the line and a uh, couple of uh, frigates uh, and a uh, transport reappear and they have come back through the gate and then then on top of that a French uh, force comes through that, that actually outnumbers the British uh, and so they find themselves in a in a real situation here. They're trying to stop a battle from taking place. And, of course, that uh, they've called on the Navy and they send a, an assault that just happens to be in the area, an assault ship that carries helicopters and two destroyers. And, uh, of course, they, inter- you know, they intercede and they get the, to, keep the, to keep the British and the French from fighting a battle right there. And they manage to settle the matter and uh, and get them back to their original, original home, their original world. So these uh, these gates they open to both the past and the future. Well, this is, it takes place about eight years from now. Of course, <clears throat> I should emphasize that this is pretty much this is science fantasy, and the likelihood of anything like this happening is very, very, very small. But it makes an interesting plot. Just makes. Uh, makes an interesting story. And then you have warships from a world that had destroyed itself with nuclear and biological weapons. Well, that uh, occurs uh, a number of things that happen. But, uh, of course, I have really essentially two plots running on this thing. This uh, Teresa Palmer that commands the assault ship is, uh, is one of these, is, uh, is another major character in this You've got, uh, like I say, you've got plots going, and you've got two plots, one going in the Atlantic and one going in the Pacific, ultimately. And uh, they, uh, of course, they encounter these warships that come through these gates, and they have to deal with the problem because it's, they, don't, they, they start causing, causing trouble. I don't know how much of the plot you, that you were able to gather or what you've read of it, uh, one of the things that, they, uh, that has happened to the world that destroyed itself is that you've got a vast surplus of men because most of the survivors are naval units. But they, uh, the Navy has what's called a Circle William procedure in which if you have radiation or biological or gas warfare, you can close up a ship against it and that they, uh, to, uh, to protect the crew. 
so most of the survivors that are in that sea and they were, they're mostly men, and they're looking for women. And that's so they they, they uh, of course they try to raid raid cruise ships because they were of course well they're vulnerable, and that that involves some of this uh, some of the plot of this thing at least in the early part of this story, and that's. Uh, it gets you get into, uh, of course, confrontations between the uh, the U.S. Navy and uh, and the survivors, and that 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 produces part of that plot. And of, uh, and of course, Tom is called on by the Navy to help counter yeah. these rogue warships. Yeah, they because uh, it's uh, yeah, essentially it's a sea, it's I call it a science fiction sea story. It's because that's what essentially what it is, and of course it involves quite a lot of naval action. And it, uh, of course, I was about ten years old when Pearl Harbor was attacked, and I we were living in, in the Pacific Northwest, so I followed the Pacific War quite a bit. I read quite a lot of it after the war, you know, when I was in high school. So I just developed an interest in naval history, and this is where some of these stems from. Who's the, uh, who's Oscar Bernard? Well, he's one of the he's one of the survivors. Well, he was aboard, of course, aboard a ship when this whole thing blew up. And uh, uh, this, well, I'm pointing out is that war very often makes makes people brutal. It has a brutalizing effect, especially prolonged war or war that's that's uh, uh, in. Uh, of course, it's almost in that case, it's almost universal. And that he is, uh, of course, he's the villain. It's a major villain of this thing. That he is, uh, and, and uh, he and, of course, Tom have their confrontations. And that uh, incident, in the, that he goes, of course, he has the capability of going from one of these worlds to another. They have it because the people in that, that had destroyed themselves, that destroyed their world, had that developed that capability. So you've got you've got scattered naval units and naval bases that are in other places that survive. Of course, you want to make a villain villainous. You want you want your reader to dislike him, and that was the whole, of course, the whole idea. Probably a little, he may be a little too evil, but uh, but that sometimes uh, you can you know, that sort of thing can sometimes happen. So that you have this, you have essentially it's a good guys versus bad guys, just like most plots are. But, uh, I think most movies or most uh, uh, novels that you see will run into this kind of thing. right. Good against evil. And of course, he meets his he meets his end in the time. Of course, as always, you got a villain's got to be defeated. At least if you're playing it, at least the way I prefer it anyway. <laughs> well, the title of your book, Timeline Warriors, and the author is Lee Holum. Lee, tell us how to get your book. Online, you can buy it from Amazon, and uh, it also occurs for with a Barnes and Noble website. I think at least those two I know of. And they, uh, you can get them from Author House as well. So that, uh, they are available. So it is, it is available. Well, thank you, Lee. Thanks for being on Author Talk. Okay, thank you very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. 
LearningRx programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life-changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where LearningRx comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899. 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that LearningRx can help you with. It's not a product. It's an experience. So join us for LearningRx, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on toginet.com. was sad, right. cause he had a death kill mommy and dad, right. but that ain't the case, nope. it wasn't his fate, nope. the walls never struggled to communicate, ha. y'all wave your hands, look who's on, it's the Coda Man Keith and he's number one, it's That Keith Wine Show on Togginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 central, every week That Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us, to hopefully help us better understand others, the topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community, for more on Keith Wine and the show, go to his website, KeithWanWANN.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Malcolmist Apprentice. And the author and poet is Malcolm Randall. And Malcolm joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I'm going to read a couple things you have written about your book just to set the stage for this discussion Told through both poetry and prose, The Malcolmist Apprentice is one man's search for self-acceptance through creativity and movement, and ultimately of his discovery of the gold within himself. You also say this, deeply personal and honest, The Malchemist is an effort to raise awareness that there's no one path that is right for all. Instead, author Malcolm Randall encourages individuality and self-acceptance and strongly believes that the only mistake are those not learned from well malcolm tell us a little bit about your background uh, some of your experiences especially with monks and why you wrote the book oh excellent um well the the premise of the book is is kind of the outcome of my life told through poetry uh but up until this point I grew up in smaller towns uh, as a child. I was a preacher's kid, and so I was always kind of considered a different personality. I, I enjoyed, you know, frivolities and laughter and, and daydreams, and, and oftentimes a young man wasn't expected or um, accepted for those personality traits. So th- I think that's what I mean. There's not one true path to anywhere because so many people told me that I could only arrive to happiness through certain things, through certain actions, through certain travels. And 
my heart really longed for more. I, I longed to find out things about life. I longed to travel the world. And I longed to be an artist. And everyone around me sort of judged me by their accepted limitations and, and ultimately told me that I wouldn't be able to achieve the things that I wanted to achieve. I quit school in the 11th grade because of bullying and harassment. And, you know, I, I just I couldn't face going out into the world every day and being afraid of being ridiculed just for being alive. And so I feel that this book is going to be a wonderful platform to speak to young people because when I was a young person, I longed for someone to tell me I was okay. I didn't need applause. I didn't need, you know, extreme amounts of, of approval. I just wanted to be loved for being alive. And so now I set off in my life. I just one day I couldn't handle it anymore and I just took off and I started living and I started trying to find my place in this world and so now I hope that this book will not be something so people can go, wow, he's such an a talented author. More importantly, I want young people or any person to look at me and go, wow, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. And so for me, that's ultimately what my hope for this book is, is to serve as a beacon for people to just be okay with who they are. Well, soon after you started writing poetry, you were featured on a NPR morning, morning show for 12 weeks. Yes. That must have been a great experience for you. You know, it was really marvelous. I uh, called the, the, the NPR station and sp- actually spoke with the general manager of the station and uh, told him, you know, about my life and, and my dreams for being a poet. And, you know, I, I feel like he was kind of amused. And he was like, all right, well, you know, let's, uh, let, me, let me let you speak to our morning show host and, you know, see what she says. <laughs> so uh, I called her, and we spoke for a little while, and... Ultimately, as a poet, it's hard to introduce people to your work if you have nothing published. And so I asked her if she would want to listen to one of my poems. <laughs> I could hear in her breath, you know, in her, uh, in her speaking that she was kind of like trying to figure out how to politely get out of it. And so she, she told me that uh, she was like, well, you know, come and record some of your work with one of my interns. And I'll listen to it and I'll get back to you. And I asked her, I was like, well... How about if you just listen to a poem? And you don't have to tell me if it's good. We can hang up the minute we get off the phone. I just, I just want to share. Give me a few minutes of your life. And she said, well, okay, I can't argue with that. So I recited her a poem, and she was quiet for a few seconds afterwards. She goes, will you come in tomorrow and record your body of work? And I was amazed. <laughs> and it was just it was just beautiful because she she opened so much up for me by featuring me on her show high schools middle schools colleges all kinds of places started asking me to come and perform and I mean I would do it for free I lived in an empty trailer I drove a beat up pickup truck but you know as long as they would feed me and give me enough gas money I felt what I was doing was so important because kids would walk out of those classrooms people would walk out of the shows and just be like I feel different about life. And it's just, it's just an amazing feeling to 
be able to share with people that way. And then eventually you were on Off-Broadway, as it's called, at the Here Arts Center in New York City. Yes, yes. Uh, a friend of mine uh, had heard about my one-man poetry show, and he was affiliated with Here Arts Center, and they're really well-known for releasing new and fresh artists. And so he offered to do that for me. And it was a, it was a two-week stint, but nonetheless... It was one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life. And while I was performing there, I happened to meet some South Korean Buddhist monks. And I honestly, at that point in my life, being from rural towns, I I didn't really know that monks existed, (laughs) to be honest. I just kind of thought that, you know, it was Hollywood and maybe somewhere across the the ocean. or I, I never even contemplated it. And they asked me, to, uh, uh, after a couple of visits, they invited me to come live with them and tutor them English. And I, I just jumped at that chance. It, it was absolutely wonderful. And while I was there, I um, was shown a movie about the Dalai Lama's life called Kundun. And I was just dumbfounded that this had happened to such a peaceful country and to such peaceful people. And I kept thinking, you know, who am I? I, I don't have any money. I have no power. I, I just wish I could do something to help these people. I, I just wish I could be somehow effective. And, uh, well, after that, I went back to Florida after the show was finished, and by a bunch of wonderful circumstances, I ended up at a community college where 10 Tibetan monks were doing a fan mandala for world peace, and I ended up speaking to the woman whose house they were uh, being hosted at, and she invited me to dinner, and I spoke to their driver that night, and I was like, you get to travel around with 10 Tibetan monks, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're living with monks, and you get paid for it. Are you kidding me? I would love this job. And he looked at me, and he goes, well, you know, we just had a job opening come up. Would you be be interested in driving? Timing is everything. Timing is absolutely everything. Well, why don't we and, take and some time right now? One, don't want to let this interview go by without having you share some of your poetry. Uh, your story is fascinating. Why don't you share some one of your you. favorites right now? One of my favorites is called Shape of Believing. And I actually, uh, it was inspired by a Bob Marley quote that said, overcome the devils with a thing called love. And I sat there and... I, when I saw this quote, I couldn't stop thinking, what can I not overcome with love? And being a child where people didn't really want to discuss m- questions about belief and religion, you know, a lot of times I-, I didn't have people to communicate with freely and openly, so I imagine myself sitting with Bob Marley and having a conversation. And the poem is called Shape of Believing because I believe that that is what life is. It's shaping your beliefs so that they work for you, that- so they can help you grow. So... Uh, I thank you for this opportunity, Shape of Believing. Overcome the devils inside your head with a thing called love, he said, as he stood next to my bed soothing these demons in my head. Look, son, you must be the one when all is said and done to claim the victories of anything new under the sun. This victory was to be to realize in me There is nothing new under the sun. And what you deem as the one that you view as yourself 
you're but part of the sum. The sum of the parts, he said in conclusion, which at that moment began to lift my confusion, and in retrospect led to disaffect the rhetoric that for years fused this to illusion. And this left me musing. Could it be all that was taught to me was but a test to see the strength of the elasticity that connected me to the greater one? And with this realization, did I succumb to the sensation brought on by the deprivation of this greater oxygen that for so long my soul has desired to breathe? With this breath, let my pain take leave. For time it has taken, the time to reshape in, the rhyme to which plays all reason. In this season of fall, time tells and heals all, as life takes the shape of believing. I love poetry because of all the rhyme and the, and the very careful selection of the words. It just seems to tighten everything right into a focus that has real power. Thank you, Steve. I really, I really appreciate that. Now, tell us about the. Let's see. We're talking about Malchemist. Now is officially registered into the Library of Congress. This word. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you know, eight years ago, I came up. This it popped in my head. The word Malchemist, and originally it was just a play on Malcolm and Alchemist, because the book, The Alchemist, just impacted, affected my life so beautifully. And so I kind of always wanted to think of myself in some terms as taking the lead of my life and through philosopher's stone of poetry and philosophy and teachings, turn it into gold. And so I, uh, I often just kind of fancied myself as a Malchemist. And, you know, honestly, a few months ago, someone emailed me, maybe, maybe eight months ago, someone emailed me and was like, do you know that the etymology for mal means evil? And so I thought to myself, wow, you know, as a poet, I can kind of get away with wordplay, but, I, you know, the word evil, I, I don't know how, if I want to really be connected with that. And so I started, you know, searching the etymology for chemist, and it turns out that it's from the Egyptian etymology. It means the transmutation of. And so I decided, since this word is defined in no dictionary, I would define it on the first page of my book as one who practices the art of transmuting evil into love, which lends itself that anyone can be a malchemist. So whenever my book was entered into the Library of Congress and it received the control number, it legally became a word bound to the definition I gave it in the book. So that was kind of like a fun little artistic introduction of myself to the world because I'm more, more than just an author, I'm a performance artist. Life is my performance. And so I thought it would just kind of be a fun introduction to what it is that I do. And the taking and this process of taking care of your mother for a couple of years as she unfortunately lost her battle to cancer, and also yes. you lost your best friend to suicide, this had a great impact on you in the creation of your book. Well, it, 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 it had a massive impact on me in the creation of myself. Uh, my mother was my best friend. The first story in the book is about her. She guided me brilliantly through life, taught me to love, 
taught, taught me not to see color or 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 gender or anything. Just taught me to love. And whenever I was traveling with the monks, we got the news that she had breast cancer. And I was set to move to India and practice yoga for a few years. But she's my best friend. And so I came back and lived with her and took care of her, got her through chemo. We thought we had her done. Um, I met my best friend and partner, and who I also dedicated the book to. And, you know, we began our life. And uh, this past summer, uh, my partner took his life. And um, my mother went into such a heavy grieving phase that the cancer went straight to her brain. And, you know, I lost her two months later to the day. So, you know, what I believe it has done is I thought I understood love, but when that happened, it absolutely shattered me. And so for the last year, I've just sat and I've tried. I was originally going to put the book out much earlier, but I needed to, you know, heal and figure out who I was because everything was foreign at this point. And I just took myself and started piecing myself back together. And, you know, I just, that's why this book has become so much more than a collection of my poetry. I just want people to understand that there's always a reason to just give yourself one more day. Just give yourself an opportunity to find a solution. And most importantly, love yourself. Love yourself. And when you love yourself, you're more available to love others because when we when we don't like who we are, when we beat each, beat ourselves up for not liking who we are, then we're not available to receive love from anywhere. So yes, I'm not perfect. I don't know anyone is. I'll never ever be perfect. But I'm much happier when I love who I am and try to expand upon the things that are good in my soul and then work on getting rid of the things that aren't. And that's that's what I want people to get from this. The title of the book, The Malcolmist, Apprentice. It's author and poet, Malcolm Randall. The book is broken down into the different seasons of the year and of life, I'm sure. Malcolm, tell us how to get your book. It's available at www.authorhouse.com. It's available as ebook on the Nook. It's available at barnesandnoble.com. Amazon.com, but as far as being a self-sustained artist, I benefit the most as far as royalty goes if you get it from AuthorHouse.com. So I'm really trying to push getting people to go to that website. Thank you, Malcolm. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. It was a pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Coming live from Seattle, Washington, home of the biggest and best internet companies on the World Wide Web, it's SEO Radio, starring Brandon Knott. Tuesday nights at 10 Central, 8 p.m. Pacific on Toginet.com. SEO Radio. This pioneering internet and social media entrepreneur will share some of his most super efficient opportunities with you, small business owners, and future entrepreneurs to help you build a future like Amazon or Expedia Online. There's never been a marketing strategy that's been so effective at allowing small businesses to compete with the big boys. 
And Brandon now helps you learn these easy as one, two, three. SEO. For more on Brandon, check out his website, SeattleOrganicSEO.com. SEO Radio. It's set for SEO Radio. Starring Brandon Nye. Tuesday nights at 10 Central, 8 p.m. Pacific on Toginet.com. Do holidays and celebrations get you down and leave you feeling frazzled? Then join Sandy Fowler and her guests on Heartfilled Holidays every Monday at noon, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Sandy will help you discover the secrets to having the celebrations you've always dreamed of while adding fun and meaning to your life. From Valentine's Day to Christmas to special family events, Sandy Fowler will show you how to put the fun and meaning back into those special days by taking a look at what we can do to turn the upcoming holidays into cherished memories and show us how to allow it to intertwine with everyday life. For more on the show, Sandy, and to receive Sandy's Holiday Happiness Booklet, go to HeartfilledHolidays.com. Then get set to discover the secrets to creating happy holidays and happy everydays by joining Sandy Fowler and her guests on Heartfilled Holidays every Monday at noon Eastern Standard Time on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Untold Experiences of a Navy Corpsman, a U.S. Navy Hospital Corpsman with a U.S. Marine Corps Reconnaissance Patrol Team in the 1950s on Covert Korean Missions. And the author is C. Gilbert Lowry, and Gil joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Gil. Uh, Hello, Steve. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. Well, great to have you with us. I'm going to read, first of all, just a a short description of your book that you've written to kind of set the stage for everyone. Doc Gilbert Lowry, HM3 slash USN, was a U.S. Navy hospital corpsman statewide aboard ship and as a medical support with a U.S. Marine reconnaissance patrol team in Korea during the 1950s. The recon team crossed the demilitarized zone into North Korea in search of POWs, MIAs, illegal ammunition caches, and military facilities. They utilized aerial photos from U-2 spy plane flyovers during and after the Korean War to locate possible objectives. The five missions by the dock with the Marine Recon Patrol Team were all successful, but sadly, they suffered casualties on each mission. The Recon Team members surrendered all forms of identification and rank before they went on the covert missions and used assumed names and identification during the missions. Doc Lowry assumed the name of Doc Lawrence C. Gentry, and that name was used in the book. Well, Gail, thanks again for your service, and uh, I don't, no one can even begin to understand what you went through, and of course, because of it, you've had sleepless nights and nightmares for, uh, you. I don't know if you, do you still have those? Uh, I do, but not, not as bad as they were at one time. Uh, since I wrote the book, uh, it acted as a uh, cathartic uh, to remove some of these <laughs> nightmares and Writing the book uh, was the best medicine I've had. It has done for me what no psychiatrist, I don't think, could do. 
For everyone's information, the Korean War, or as some call it, the Forgotten War, was it a war or a conflict, officially? Well, uh, officially, it was called uh, the Korean Conflict. But to the to me, the 480,000 U.S. troops that fought there and the 37,000 that were killed, 103,000 wounded, uh, I think it was a war. Yes, and 37... Hundred were taken prisoner of war, and 8,142 of our military were and are missing in action, MIA. And that was your job, to go in and rescue those who were taken prisoner. Uh, that's, uh, that's correct. We, uh, the 8,142 that were missing in action in 1953... Uh, 7,997 of those MIAs are, are still unaccounted for. Wow. Uh, the, the figures that where it's been reduced is only where they uh, have, uh, except for those we brought out, uh, the ones that where they have found the remains and identified them and brought them back home to their families. Another uh, untold figure, North Korea lost 215,000 and China lost 114,000 troops. Uh, As you say, uh, none or very little of all of this is taught in our schools today. Uh, Very little of our military history is taught in our our schools today. Uh, That's that's one reason that I uh, wrote this book. I wanted to let our family and our uh, my friends and, and the general public to know about my military life and experiences in Korea. And I think it's important that we leave our recollections of history to future generations and hopefully they'll learn something from these stories and and they can learn what uh, our military accomplished to help keep our country free and, and protect it uh, from any further... Uh, 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 terrorist attacks uh, such as 9-11. Now, you gave up all identification when you went on these covert missions. I can't imagine the feeling of having to do that. And, of course, whereas most hospital corpsmen and medics didn't receive any kind of a weapon, you were armed. Uh, yes. I, first of all, I was uh, uh, another infantryman. I, I was, uh, uh, that was my uh, primary duty. Uh, officially, and uh, I carried uh, a 45 uh, <clears throat> caliber pistol on my on my hip. I had a 38 a revolver and a shoulder holster, and uh, had most of the time carried a M1 carbine and and two large medical packs and a <laughs> right. field pack and they, uh, all the ammunition and first aid supplies you could imagine. But no dog tags. No dog tags. Well, I guess I, I did have dog tags with the name Lawrence C. Gentry. Yes. I've got to set those dog tags here today. Your fictitious name. Right. It's not the ones that I don't have the ones that were issued to me. They were picked up, but I do, uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, they were picked up from us, but uh, I have had a set made. Uh, so I've got two sets of dog tags with uh, my real name and my assumed name here. <laughs> How many men were you able to rescue? <clears throat> On uh, mission number three, we rescued eight uh, uh, men. There were five American soldiers. Uh, 
I remember there was one captain, army captain, and one army medic included in those five, and there were three South Korean army soldiers. And they told us when we rescued them that had we been there a few weeks earlier, there would have been, there were 21 POWs at that location. And on uh, on the fourth mission, which was a few miles north of Sarawan, uh, near Song Nim, uh, we rescued uh, 18 uh, POWs. There were two American Marines, nine American soldiers, five Australian soldiers, and two South Korean soldiers. And they told us the same thing there, that they, uh, there had been 45 POWs at that location just two weeks before we uh, went through there. Now, were there men killed uh, on these missions? Uh, yes, we we lost uh, lost brothers on each uh, on each of the five missions I I went on. Uh, there were uh, uh, and we uh, took uh, one of their dog tags and left one with them and buried them. Plotted the uh, location that they were buried on a map and brought that information back with us and the. What I have referred to recently in interviews, uh, the Korean underground, the North Korean uh, uh, people that were loyal to the United States and helped us in, in many ways, uh, went back in and, and brought those uh, the bodies of our uh, fallen comrades back uh, to South Korea so they could be uh, shipped to their, to their families. Try to help us understand, Gil, just the feeling. I know your book starts out with you're in a helicopter, you're flying very, very low, you're in uh, enemy territory. What's the feeling? It was, it was a feeling of exhilaration. Uh, it was uh, scary as I'll get out. Uh, I was very nervous. I had the first on the first trip. But then, after you get on the ground and uh, uh, repel out of the helicopter and uh, 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 start moving, uh, you you are anxious, but but a lot of the fear subsides. And then, uh, when you have contact with the enemy, you uh, uh, go through everything. And then, that, after it's over with, that's. That's when your knees start shaking, and when you think about what might have been. But uh, and then when we rescued those 26 uh, military POWs, uh, uh, a total of 26, um, the look on their eyes with the realization that they had been rescued, that they were finally going to get out of there and go home. Uh, I, I just wish you could see uh right. the look on their faces I, I i can't paint that picture for you but and that that was payment for all we went through and just you, to bring those people home and you can probably remember those faces forever i i think i could recognize every last one of them if i met them on the street without introduction now you had to engage the enemy at times in in conflict con- i mean in combat to protect yourself uh, yes, we did. Uh, we uh, um, we slept in the daytime. We traveled at night. We found caves and, and 
uh, wooded areas to hide and sleep in during the day. Uh, we were uh, located and, and uh, run in, uh, <clears throat> ran into several patrols and had to defend ourselves. We were ambushed on, on several uh, uh, occasions. That's the most of the time that we lost uh, uh, men were uh, in ambushes. But we located some ammunition uh, dumps uh, that were within 100 miles or 200 miles of the DMZ that were not supposed to be there under the ceasefire agreement, and we were able to take those out. Uh, that was pretty exciting, watching those ammunition dumps explode, and we found some anti-aircraft guns that we uh, were able to dis... Uh, we were able to uh, take out and disable and then we um, like I said on the two missions uh, rescued the POWs and we had to attack the uh, the compounds and and, and release those uh, to release those uh, POWs from from captivity and that's uh, where the most anxious uh, combat came in and making sure that the prisoners were not injured and, and, we, and uh, we were able to get them out. How did you become part of these recon teams? Was it something you were assigned to, or did you volunteer? Uh, I was told that I volunteered. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you were told you, you were volunteered, uh, yes. Uh, uh, the way it came about uh, on... <clears throat> In uh, early 1957, I was aboard the USS General A.E. Anderson uh, troop ship out of San Francisco on the way to uh, Okinawa and, and, and Japan. Uh, and <clears throat> on, during, we were experienced a storm one night, and several of the Marines uh, were injured, uh, hitting their shins on the, the steel uh hatches a, a door swinging shut on a on a couple of hands and so forth so i was in the sick bay sewing up some uh, uh suturing some uh the cuts and uh, lieutenant skinner uh as his name was in the book um asked me if i uh had any combat experience and i said well no not really except for working in an emergency room at Camp Lejeune in Paris Island and and uh, and attending to Marines and soldiers aboard ship that were injured. And he asked me a few more questions about my experience, and I had been through the uh, Fleet Marine Force uh, uh, training for a hospital corpsman, uh, four weeks of, of, of field training. And... Uh, so he asked if I would be willing to go on temporary duty with his uh, team in, in Korea. And I told him, well, he'd have to talk with my superiors about that. And the next morning, I was informed by the chief hospital corpsman that I would be leaving the ship uh, uh, when we got to Japan uh, to go on temporary duty with that fleet marine force. So... Uh, yes, I guess I volunteered. Have you ever been contacted by the men you liberated as prisoners of war? Uh, no, I have not, uh, nor have I um, 
run into any of or been contacted by any of the uh, Marines that I served with. Uh, but I guess mainly because of our assumed names. Right. I knew the true first name of two or three of the men, but I knew none of their last names. And I never did run into any of them at any of my other duty stations. Now, we need to recognize you, Gil. Uh, your books have been nominated for some special awards in two categories. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, they, uh, the Military Writers Society of America has recommended uh, my book as Book of the Year in the uh, Korean War Book Award for uh, 2011, and the Military uh, Navy uh, category for 2011. And uh, uh, they have categories for the military, Daesh Air Force, Daesh Army, Daesh Marines, Daesh Navy, and and that's uh, the category. I was in the Navy category there, and then the the special uh, Korean War Book Award is the uh, is the biggie. I understand in that, and the awards will be made uh, to the uh, winning nominee October the first in Pittsburgh. Great. And I'm try- I'm trying to arrange to uh, for my wife and I to go to that. Uh, uh, award ceremony. I don't know if we're going to be able to work that out or not. Well, fantastic. Congratulations. And most people don't understand that technically the Korean f- conflict is not over. No peace treaty was ever signed. Uh, that's, that's correct. Uh, they signed a uh, an armistice agreement on July the 27th, 1953 that just uh, uh, declared a ceasefire and uh, a stated armistice uh, uh, was all that it was. There's been no unconditional peace treaty uh, that they supposedly have been negotiating all these years. But um, after 58 years, and the saber-rattling still goes on, you know, they recently sunk a South Korean ship, the North Koreans did, and then they shelled a South Korean island. And uh, but peace uh, can never be negotiated when at least one side has no intention of declaring an unconditional peace. Well, congratulations, Gil. We appreciate uh, your willingness to go through this incredible emotional experience to write this book. At the same time, as you say, it was it was therapeutic. But it's an amazing story of amazing rescue missions by, by heroes. I mean, you're a hero. I know you probably don't like to hear that, Gil, but that's what we no, feel I about like you. That term. <laughs> I know. The heroes but, were buried. Over yeah, there. I know. But you were willing to go in and risk your life to rescue great Americans. So thank you so much uh, for your book. It's titled The Untold Experiences of a Navy Corpsman. It's subtitled, A U.S. Navy Hospital Corpsman with a U.S. Marine Corps Reconnaissance Patrol Team in the 1950s on Covert Korean Missions. Tell us how to get your book, Gil. Uh, The book is available through the publisher, uh, AuthorHouse.com. It's also available through BarnesandNoble.com and on Amazon.com. And if anybody wants... um, an autographed copy. They can contact me uh, uh, at at G Lowry two 
at nc.rr.com. And I'll be glad to uh, work out the details and for them to pay me, and we'll um, mail them an autographed copy. Thanks, Gil, for being on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed talking with you, and uh, maybe we can talk again in the future. And God bless America, and God bless our military around the world.